Some of you may not know this, but down the hall, there is approximately another hundred people. Um, I just want you to know that. It's ironic that I'm preaching about unity today when half of us are down there <laughs> and half of us are here. But we are one. We are one family in Christ, and we are one family as Calvary Bible Church. We hope that you feel like you're a part of the family, and more importantly, I hope you know that you are part of the family in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we come once again to your word, and it seems the older that I get, the more precious Sunday morning becomes to me to be with the saints, to be with your people, to sing your praises, to know that if Hebrews 2 is correct, that you sing with us when we sing the praises of the Father. And so we thank you, Father, for this time together, and we ask you to speak to us by your word. And pray, Father, that you would fill my mouth with your truth and, and protect us from error. May our hearts be changed. May we be appropriately convicted, perhaps by what is said this morning. May we be encouraged also as we look at this text. No matter whether it reveals sin or whether it con confirms or affirms the righteousness, the practical righteousness you are making in us. Because all of it is to the glory of Christ. And we are here to worship him and him only. And so we give you praise and thanksgiving for this time. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen. Colossians chapter 4, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad you're here, and we believe God has brought you here this morning. The uh, reason we believe that is because you are here, and if you are here, then it's because the Lord has brought you. This is, what did I say? <laughs> I know I make this look easy, but... Um, <laughs> Philippians chapter 4. You know why I said Colossians? Because my page is open here, and on the right side is Colossians. And so on the left side is, I always lean right, on the left side is Philippians chapter 4. Let's, let's dive in here. This morning, I, I've already mentioned it. I want to talk to you about unity. And we're going to talk about unity because that's what the text talks about. But as we discuss practical unity in the body of Christ, we are going to discover that it is also necessary to talk about the biblical doctrine of union with Christ. And honestly, after this week of study, I'm almost tempted to do a whole series just on union with Christ because I, I don't think we talk about it enough and therefore, I think too many of us have never even heard of the doctrine of union with Christ, and we therefore don't, we don't value what we have, as maybe you'll see a little more clearly as we go along. You'll remember that the first word of the passage before us in chapter 4 is therefore, which points back to the preceding chapters. Um, we observed last time that Paul was likely pointing back to the doctrines of justification, sanctification, and glorification, which are explicitly mentioned in chapter 3, the chapter just before this one. 
We might add, however, that he's not only referring back to the glorious doctrines that I just mentioned, but also the warning, and flip back a page if that's the way yours is set up, to the end of chapter 3, where Paul offers this sobering warning, beginning with verse 18, where he says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction, their God is their belly or their appetite. They glory in their shame and with minds set on earthly things. This is a warning. This is not just a, a comment. This is a warning. It's a sobering warning. And what Paul, I think, is warning us of is that for those who fail to follow Paul's example of faith and life, they are in danger of actually falling away and becoming enemies of the cross. Listen, there's, there's two ways to fall away. Uh, you could fall away in your doctrine and your practice or your, your, your lifestyle will follow. But the opposite is true as well. You could fall away in your practice, and guess what will happen? Your doctrine will follow. You fall away from Christ by the way you live. The only way you can do that and maintain any kind of mental integrity is to compromise doctrine as well. And we see that so often. This is not theoretical. With all of that in mind, then, Paul exhorts the Philippians and us to stand firm in the Lord. Don't be like these men. Stand firm in the Lord. In other words, he's calling us to do exactly the opposite of what we see in 319. Instead of taking a passive approach to your walk with the Lord, it's kind of one of the themes of Philippians. Instead of being passive about your walk with the Lord, being tossed about by every wind, he will say to the Philippians, every wind of doctrine, Paul wants us rather to be intentional, to follow his example. We are to press on, forgetting what lies behind and straining for what lies ahead in terms of our knowledge of Christ and our becoming conformed into the likeness of Christ. We are to be active, strategic, determined to stand upon the precious divine truths of the Bible, those mysteries which we could only know by divine revelation. We would know nothing of Christ if it were not for divine revelation, which God has made known to us in his inspired word. And if we don't, oh, beloved, if we don't, if we don't stand firm in these things, Paul is concerned that we may eventually end up just like those men who turn their back on Christ, men about whom he wrote, he says, with tears because they are lost, though they went to church with them every Lord's Day. The fact that Paul is commanding them to stand firm suggests that there were certain forces and pressures at work to separate them from their devotion to Christ, and that's always the case. The details of his letter bear this out. For example, turn back to uh, chapter 1. We are in Philippians, right? Philippians 1, 27 and 28, and here's what we read. He says that we are to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Listen carefully. 
not frightened in anything by our opponents. So there were very definitely those who were opposing their commitment to Christ. In fact, the very next verse says this, verse 29. In, in, in part, this confirms for us or encourages us that even that is under the Lord's control. And so he says in verse 29, For it has been granted to you for Christ's sake that you should not only believe in him, but also that you will suffer for his sake. Listen, the enemies that you face, if you face any, spiritually, it may be a real live person, but the fight, the, the, the tension, the, the battle is real, relationally or however it comes across. Do you realize that while they are responsible for rejecting Christ and saying those things and doing those things to you, do you realize that God also is using them in your life to change you? Just think of Joseph, right? How did he get to Egypt? You say, well, his, his brothers are responsible for that. That's true. And so is God. Because in Psalms it says, God sent him to Egypt to rescue his people. And we see this all throughout the scriptures. God is sovereign. God is sovereign over all things. If there is one maverick molecule in the whole universe, God is not sovereign. But he is. Even over your suffering, God is sovereign. So we can infer from this that Paul assumes there will be external pressures and resistance to our devotion to Christ and his word. It may come from your employer. It may come from your wife or your husband. It may come from your adult children. It may come from your neighbor or even from the government itself. But... Paul is saying, we are not to give in to those pressures. We are rather to stand firm. But then we need to notice that Paul modifies his command. He doesn't merely say stand firm. He says, watch this, stand firm thus. And you may be thinking, oh no. Pastor, you're not going to give us a whole dissertation on a single word again, are you? I mean, we're never going to make it through Philippians or whatever book we're in. Just be patient with me here, as you always are. Um, stand firm comes from a Greek word that is hutos. And that may not mean anything to most of you, but some of you it does. Let me explain. The word hutos is sometimes translated so, S-O. You say, that doesn't help me. Just hang on. <laughs> this word, hutos, is found in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, etc. It's hutos. So. Um. Here in our text, hutos is translated not so, but thus, T-H-U-S. In both cases, 
A clear translation into our modern ears might be this. In this manner, or in this way, rather than so or thus. So in John 3.16, it can read, and I believe should read, In this manner God loved the world. He gave his Son, the only one. And here, in our text for this morning, the better translation might be this. Stand firm in this manner, or in this way. In what way? In all the ways that he's been teaching throughout the letter? Yes. In all the ways that he mentioned in chapter 3? Yes. He's referencing everything that he said in chapters 1 through 3. The, the instructions I've given you. Stand firm in this manner. Stand firm thus. And I believe he's also pointing forward to chapter 4. Stand for, firm, not only in the ways that we've already covered, but in the ways I'm about to cover. Or you could say it like this. Your standing firm in all of the ways that I've already covered will result in a lifestyle that I'm about to describe. And all of it together, the doctrine and the practice is what I'm talking about. There's doctrine, there's practice, there's practice, there's doctrine. You have to have them both right. One feeds the other. A doctrine feeds your behavior, but if you get the behavior wrong, it's going to affect your doctrine. And so I want to suggest to you that what we find in verses 2 through 9 are some of the characteristics of a church that is standing firm. What does it look like for a church to stand firm? Well, I see six characteristics in verses 2 through 9, and I think they're appropriate to state them in the following way. It might sound like this. Now, let me just put a caveat here. I'm not giving you an outline for the sermon, and you'll see that on your notes. This is, <laughs> this is my outline. Where's Kyle? Kyle, this is my outline for the next month, okay, or so. Number one, and this is today's, let your fellowship be characterized by unity. If you're standing firm as a church, your fellowship will be characterized by unity. Number two, let Christ be your fountain of joy. Rejoice in the Lord always, right? Number three, let your reputation be clothed in gentleness or grace or big-heartedness, which we'll talk about when we get there. Number four, let your fears be extinguished by prayer. Number five, let your mind be occupied with God's graces. And number six, let your resolve be a life that pleases the Lord or a life that is obedient to the Lord. So that's where we're going. Number one is today's sermon. And I'm not going to give you that outline. I'm afraid that might just confuse you on top of all of that. And so we'll just, you'll hear it as we go through. You have it printed in your bulletin. So number one, let your fellowship be characterized by unity. So let's, okay, so all of that was introduction. Can we stand and let's read this text? I didn't have you stand last week in honor of God's word. Let's do it now. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved, I entreat Yodia, 
and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. And we have to, we've noticed throughout our study of this text that Paul seemed especially concerned about the unity of the church in Philippians. It's interesting, he doesn't go after any false teachers here, and as you're going along, you're thinking, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder what, what's going on and, and behind the scenes that he's concerned about, but obviously not overly concerned about because he doesn't address it like he does in other places where the problem is really significant. But there, there apparently is a problem, and, and, and it's evident throughout Philippians. Let me just give you two instances. Witness verse 27 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 27, Paul expected to hear that they were standing together with one spirit and one mind. And then chapter 2, verse 2, he says, so this is Paul, he's alluding to the issue of unity, he's exhorting them throughout the letter, kind of hinting along the way that maybe something's wrong. Chapter 2, verse 2, he says, complete my joy, as if to say, it's incomplete until this next thing happens. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You see unity there? And so number one in the outline, here's, here's what I see. Number one, the lack of unity in Yodia and Syntyche. He's been mentioning unity all along, and now, and now he gets to it. All along the way, it seems like Paul's primary concern for the church has been that the seeds of division may have been sprouting, and now we learn why. This wasn't merely a theoretical construct on the apostles' part. He wasn't de dealing in abstracts. This was a real issue. There were actually two women in the church who were at odds with one another. Something had happened. Yodia and Syntyche are now in, in they're crossways with each other. They're mad at each other. They're disillusioned with one another. They're, they feel betrayed. Or I, I don't, we don't know. And worse, it seems apparent that the whole church knew about it. And if they didn't know about it, they will as soon as this letter arrives. <laughs> Just interesting that Paul names names, isn't it? People get offended if you name names. Sometimes you have to. Um, and how would you like for your sin to be broadcast for, through all eternity, through the inspired word of God, with your name attached? If there was, if there was something behind the scenes that Paul has been alluding to, I think this reveals what it is. Now, what do we know about these two women? Well, we aren't told much, but there is perhaps enough to draw some inferences. First of all, they are members of the church at Philippi. It's entirely possible that they may have been among the women who were with Lydia 
When Paul first met them at the river on the Sabbath day, a few years previous, Acts chapter 16, if you want the fuller narrative on that. If that's the case, these, these two women would have been charter members of that local church. And we don't have to infer that they were believers. We know that they were. A lot of times you don't know, right? But here, not only does Paul write that they are having a problem, but he also writes that, or he implies, that their names are written in the book of life. Now, if you're going to name me and, and put me with a problem and tell the world, please tell the world that you are convinced that my name is written in the book of life. And he does that here. Secondly, Paul knew them well. He knew these two women because they had been fellow workers with him. He clearly says that they had labored side by side with him. Can you imagine? Laboring side by side with the apostle Paul. And we don't know what that looked like. Maybe they traveled with him. There were a number of women who traveled with Jesus everywhere. They, they helped, they served, they funded they used their own money. But they were side by side with him for the advancement of the gospel. Number three, there was a significant disagreement which had arisen between them. We, we don't know what the disagreement was, and that's to our benefit because now we can insert any of our disagreements in here. And then it becomes more practical. And number four, these two women, and this is precious to me, and we see this tone all through Philippians, these two women were still the objects of Paul's high regard and affection. Notice how he addresses it. He's, he doesn't say, I command. He says, I entreat. Please, Yodia. Please, Syntyche. I love you. You're also my joy and my crown. And, and I long to be with you and see you again. Please settle this. Reconcile. They are Christians and therefore sisters in Christ. Paul knew them well and he loved them both. And that's wonderful. Nevertheless, the conflict between them was intolerable. And Paul wasn't about to overlook it or act like it didn't matter in Christ's church. It does matter. Division in the church matters to God. It's no small thing when division happens. Even if it's just between two people, it matters if you were part of the body of Christ. Now, I want to remind you about something we learned last week that's important to return to now. We learned that biblical doctrine matters, right? And we already knew that, but we were reminded last week. And all biblical doctrine, I suggested last week, all biblical doctrine has attached to it a therefore, in other words, every precept has a practice. Every doctrine has a duty. In this case, if we might dare to reverse engineer Paul's thinking, we can examine the duty that he's calling us to and track it back to the doctrine. The duty that Paul is calling for, the application that he is requiring of the church is rooted in a specific and essential doctrine with which you all should be familiar, namely the doctrine of the believer's union with Christ. This is a major doctrine 
in evangelical Christianity and in any, any kind of Christianity, they may define it differently. Pick up any systematic theology and look up union with Christ and you're going to find page after page after page after page after page. It relates to everything. And, and you could argue that it's the foundation of everything. If you don't have union with Christ, you have nothing from God. You get nothing from God apart from union with Christ. So let's talk, number two, about the doctrine of our union with Christ. What's the biblical doctrine of union with Christ? Well, it is the truth that speaks of the most vital spiritual intimacy that one can imagine between the Lord and his people. While Christ relates to his people as Lord, he relates to us as Master, he relates to us as Savior, he relates to us as Teacher, Nevertheless, we are not merely associated with Christ as the object of saving grace and love. That's not all there is to it. The doctrine of union with Christ teaches us that Christians do, listen, everybody, all eyes up here. What the doctrine of union with Christ teaches us is that believers, Christians, do not merely worship Jesus. We do not merely obey Jesus. We don't merely pray to Jesus, although all of those precious privileges are ours. Rather, the doctrine of union with Christ tells us that we are so intimately identified with Jesus and he with us that scripture refers to that relationship as our being in Christ. We are in Christ. We don't just believe things about Christ. We don't just come and talk about Christ. We don't just agree on certain doctrines about Christ, even hypostatic union, that wonderful, glorious doctrine. That is not our Christianity. What it means to be a Christian is that we have the very life of Christ flowing in us, to us, from outside of us. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. The Lord and his people share a common spiritual life. And the term for that in Greek is koinonia. It is fellowship, but it is, it is more than just having a potluck. We don't have potlucks with Jesus. What we have is union. We have life in Christ. He is our life. There are actually, there are actually theological, spiritual, and there are practical. And, and I may have to spend more than one Sunday. In Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul was so, this doctrine so saturated his teaching and his life that in Colossians 3.3, he says that our life is hidden with God. How? In Christ. And that Christ himself is our life. Colossians 3, 4 says, and then 
Paul goes on in Galatians 2.20 and says, Christ lives in us. That's where he says, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's I, but not I. You say, where's the division? There isn't any. And consider this, because of union with Christ, believers have been crucified with Christ. We have died with Christ. We have been buried with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. And we are right now, because of our union with Christ, enthroned in heaven with Christ. And you should say hallelujah. Hallelujah. (laughs) I know we're not a hallelujah church, but there are things that should just jolt you and cause you to say something about the glory of this grace. And consider this. Such intimate spiritual union is unique to Christianity. No other religion claims, they don't even claim that the object of their worship is actually the life of the worshiper. Nobody claims that. Muslims don't speak of being in Allah or Muhammad being in them. Buddhists never say that they are in Buddha. They may follow the teachings of their respective religious leaders, but Christians alone are in Christ. You see the difference? Now, let me just give an exhortation that I didn't plan on. You know what this means? If you are in Christ and you have his life in you, you will bear fruit. You say, what's that fruit look like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, humility. You say, well, I feel love for people. It's not what he's talking about. It's about having the capacity to love them even when you want to wring their neck. I mean, Paul gives us that in the context in Galatians between Jew and Gentile. I mean, who have been murderously antagonistic toward each other. Peace, not the peace that passes understanding. It's a different text. Peace with someone with whom you would otherwise be at war. We've talked about these things before. But what I want you to see is if you believe you're a Christian because you come and worship on Sunday and you take time to pray and you periodically read your Bible, when the world thinks Christian, the world thinks Baptist, maybe evangelical, maybe Catholic, Orthodox, Greek, Orthodox, Russian, Orthodox, Orthodox, (laughs) Coptic, um, and there are others. There's another kind of Christian I heard about this week over in one of the Middle Eastern countries I'd never heard of before. They're all Christian. And I, I, I say to you that most of those who claim Christ do not know him. They are not in union with Christ. They don't have his life 
in their being, which is evidenced by the way they live. You might ask, back to my notes, is this doctrinal teaching really taught in the Bible? One theologian I read this week answered that with these words. The concept of union with Christ is as pervasive as it is precious. Which just means this precious doctrine is everywhere, if you have eyes to see it. If you have eyes to see it, you will notice. You'll notice it most often in that tiny preposition, in. Believers are often said, as as I mentioned earlier, we are said to be in Christ, or in the Lord, or in him. Similarly, Christ is said to be in his people. In Colossians 1.27, Paul says, Christ is in you, the hope of glory, the fact that Christ is in you, is your hope of heaven. Do we have any of these terms in our text? I'm being very systematic here because I'm assuming that many of you don't know this truth and I want you to see it. I want you to understand it. I want you to see it. Is this teaching alluded to in this text? Well, yes, the most obvious verse in chapter 4 is verse 1. And I want you to notice, you know, the first phrase that Paul says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus. But I didn't continue reading. Notice the next three words. Stand firm thus, how? In the Lord. In the Lord, my beloved. Paul doesn't merely say stand firm. He doesn't conclude by saying stand firm in this manner. No, he says stand firm in this manner in the Lord. You see, because we are united with Christ, there is nothing God calls us to do outside of the Lord. Because there's nothing you can do of any benefit that is acceptable and pleasing to God outside of the Lord. The Lord. That's why, that's why Jesus in John chapter 15 gives us the metaphor of the vine and the branches. His whole point there was, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. nothing. And oh, how much nothing we do. He never expects us to do anything in our own strength. He never expects us to do anything in our own wisdom. He never expects us to do anything in our own resources or for our own glory. The goal that Christ would be preeminent in our lives and in our church rises from the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of our unity, which, by the way, is why I had Keith read from John chapter 17 this morning, I wanted to at least be able to point back. If you weren't paying attention, you totally missed this. But in John 17, Jesus connects our unity with his unity with the Father and the Spirit. Therefore, he loves us 
as much as he loves Christ. And now, <clears throat> let me just take another aside. I am watching the clock. We're fine. <clears throat> um, I meet so many people. It's, it's stunning to me just in the past year. I didn't realize people struggle with this as much as they do. So many people struggle with whether or not God loves them and will forgive them. Beloved, you just got to understand the doctrine of union with Christ. All his righteousness is yours. Of course it's yours. You are union. You are united with him. Everything he has is yours. Don't make your sin greater than Christ. Don't make your lack of emotional feelings of love master the way you live. Do you not understand? God said he loves you. And he not only said it, he proved it. He accomplished it in the cross of Christ. If you're unwilling to accept that love, there's nothing else to say. And so here's what I would suggest you do. This is going to sound shocking, even controversial. <clears throat> if you are having trouble forgiving yourself, and if you feel like you are not worthy of love, that you are, and, and by the way, that's true. I said that wrong. You're not worthy of love. This is the glory of the gospel, right? That God cannot love you. If you feel like God does not love you, and that your sin cannot be forgiven, then here's what I want you to do. Are you ready? Write this down. There's one word. Repent. I'm dead serious. Repent. Who cares what you think? Who cares what you feel? God has spoken. God has spoken. God has, for your everlasting joy, God has spoken. How dare you raise your feelings and your opinions over his inspired word. Repent. Our only connection to God the Father is in the Lord. That vital and permanent union with Jesus Christ is the only means by which the love and life of God dwells in us. Our salvation and all of its benefits come to us only in union with Christ, only in the Lord. Furthermore, the biblical doctrine that teaches us that we are united with Christ has a therefore after it. Therefore, you are united to everyone who belongs to him. Therefore, Ephesians 4, 3, preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Listen, you didn't create the unity. Your job is to fight back the world, the flesh, and the devil who are trying to disrupt the unity that God has given you by his grace. Preserve the unity of the Spirit. And, and that. That's far more difficult than it sounds. But you are in Christ, therefore you have every capacity to do it. Paul will say this, 
repeatedly throughout the New Testament, especially in 1 Corinthians, let there be no division among you. We see other verbal markers that point to our union with Christ in the book of Philippians. Another example would be in verse 2, where Paul says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree, how? In the Lord, there it is again. In verse 4, we see it again, when Paul commands, rejoice, how? In the Lord, not in your circumstances. Okay, that's, <clears throat> I'm not going to preach that until we're there. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there are several similar allusions to our union with Christ sprinkled throughout this short letter. One of them that I, just on my way here this morning or, or last night, I don't remember. Um, everybody here can quote Philippians 4.13. Think about the words, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Union with Christ. Union with Christ. Now before we move on, I want to go one step deeper and show you some of the metaphors of the doctrine of union with Christ. This is in your notes, number three, the metaphors of our union with Christ. There are biblical metaphors that point to this. For example, the vine and the branches, which is for a lot of us our favorite one. Because Jesus unpacks it himself, and it's just a beautiful analogy. And frightening, and sobering. The vine and the branches, and I won't unpack that today. Ephesians 5.23, where he's talking about marriage. He gives the analogy of the head and the body, but he's talking about Christ and his church. There was a union. How, how personal is that union? Well, how personal is your head to your shoulders, to your body? Is that personal? It's organic in some spiritual way. It is an organic spiritual union. And there is the husband-wife analogy. We see it in 2 Corinthians 11.2, and we see it back here again in Ephesians 5.22 and 23, where he's talking about marriage. And he says, but I am referring to Christ and his church. And that metaphor of the husband and wife, the husband and wife, the whole marriage scenario that God ordained even in the garden was ordained with this in mind, that your marriage would be a picture of, of Christ and his church. And there are certain implications of that. For example, the intimacy of the union. There should be an intimacy between you and Christ. In the marriage, it's called one flesh. That is to be a picture of our relationship with Christ. That is what it will be like perfectly in heaven. And then there's the legality of the union, which is Apparent in marriage, Christ acts as our legal representative, just as, not so much practically in our day today, but the husband represents the wife legally. And then there's this unbreakable bond of union to hold fast. We're glued together, husband and wife. And Paul will say, but I am speaking of Christ and his church 
Nothing can separate you. Listen, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. But the metaphor that speaks most directly to the issue we discover in Philippians 4 is the picture of the building and its foundation. Now, very briefly, you're in Philippians. Turn back to Ephesians. And in Ephesians, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2. And I just want to look at a couple of verses here. Verses 19 through 22. Philippians 2. Watch this. By the way, he's, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles who've been at war historically forever. Even in Paul's day. And now they're coming together in this church experience, this church life, because they're if they're believers, they're all in union with Christ, therefore in union with one another. So, in verse 19, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, speaking of the Gentiles, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom, now watch these words carefully, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so Paul pictures the church as the temple of the Lord on earth, the place where God dwells, the place through which or through whom he blesses the world. The temple has a precious foundation here referred to as the cornerstone. It not only supports everything, but it makes everything beautiful. It is the foundation. The Lord Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. But the rest of the temple consists of individual stones that are, verse 21, joined together and grow together into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you, and by the way, these are all plural pronouns, you are also being built together. Listen, a pile of bricks is no use. You can't worship under a pile of bricks. But if you take those pile of, that pile of bricks or scattered bricks and you bring them together and you unite them very carefully, you can build something glorious. And that's who you are. Living stones. Living stones that God is using to build his temple. You are united, not only to Christ at the foundation level, but to one another. That's why the common cup in communion is so powerful. And, and I realize we have reason, biological reasons, <clears throat> to pass individual cups. In Ukraine, when I go over to Ukraine or any of those countries, they have the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's common cup. They might have two common cups because of the number of people. Uh, Mercy on you if you're number 387. <laughs> um, but why a common cup? Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 13. Because it's a picture of your unity 
with Christ and one another. It is there that he talks about no division, no division, no division. Don't we have a common cup, he says. Don't we have one bread, one cup, one Savior, one cross, one blood? Then we are one. Therefore, there should be no practical division in the church. The picture here is one of purposeful, sovereignly designed unity. And then the Apostle Peter picks up on that in his first epistle when he declares that we are living stones, and I mentioned that, built up as a spiritual house. I think he's just picking up on what Paul said and developing it. And so you see, when Yodia and Syntyche got crossways with each other, now you know why it was a big deal. It was a failure to stand firm. It was a failure of faith. You know what it was? Is leaning on your own understanding. It's a failure to obey. It's a failure to believe. It was a failure to follow the example of Christ, who although he was in the form of God, chapter 2 of Philippians says, he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, even to the point of death on the cross for those who were his enemies. They failed. Chapter 2, verse 3. Yodia and Sintichi failed to do nothing from selfishness or ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind count others more important than yourself. They were failing. It was a failure to maintain one mind having the same love. It was a failure to flesh out their mutual union with Christ. Beloved, I want you to hear me say that unity is no small thing in the body of Christ. And let me, let me just stack on top of that to be clear, union at Calvary Bible Church is incredibly important to the elders. Not some superficial t-shirt bumper sticker union. Not let's all just get along without any reference to doctrine. No, 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 no. We are united in Christ and we know that because of these doctrines, the only way we can understand it is through these inspired doctrines. This is why the message a couple of weeks ago on James 4 was so important. We have to know how to biblically diagnose our own hearts when conflict with one another between members of the church begins to sprout. What do you do? What do you think? What do you say? We have to know what to do when unity is threatened and what my part in the disunity might be if I'm involved. What is my contribution? What's going on in my heart? What do I want? What do I fear? Do I want it so much I'm willing to syndicate? And if we can't handle it by ourselves, then we need to ask someone for help. You say, is that in the text? Point number four, the believer's role in practical unity. You want to know what the believer's role is? First of all, guard your heart. Keep watch over it, the Proverbs say. Don't listen to it. Don't forget what Walt Disney says. Don't follow your heart. You'll end up in a world of hurt. And some of you are in a world of hurt in your relationship with God and Christ because you've been following your heart. Stop it.
follow Christ, follow his word. Speak truth to your heart like David did when he said, why are you downcast, oh my soul? Who is he talking to? Himself. If you don't know how to engage in that kind of battle, you need to learn it. Maybe you need to come to the conference next month. Why are you downcast? Put your hope in God. If standing firm in the Lord means, in part, that we preserve the unity of the Spirit in the church, then we need to take it very seriously and seek help when we get stuck. Apparently, Yodia and Syntyche were stuck. They just couldn't resolve this issue. Whatever it was, they couldn't resolve it on their own. And Paul understood this implicitly. Watch what he says in verse 3. Yes, I ask you, true companion, or true yoke fellow, some of your translations say. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Help these women. You want to know why we're passionate about biblical counseling at this church? This is why. Sometimes two people whose names are written in the book of life get stuck. They need someone, some brother whose name is also written in the book of life to take God's word and step into the fog of their sin and confusion and turn on the bright light of scripture and lead them safely home. Home where there's reconciliation. Home where there's union. Home where there's true koinonia. Sometimes it's a husband and wife who need help. Sometimes it's siblings, adult or even childhood siblings who need help. It might be two homeschool moms who just want something good, but who are willing to sin to get it or sin if they can't have it. It may be two deacons, and if you're offended by my saying homeschool moms, I'll also say it may be two elders. If you're a sinner and you know another sinner, <laughs> there's probably going to be friction. Sometimes we just need help, the help of a brother or a sister in Christ who can speak the truth in love and remind us of God's commands and promises and lead us down the road of repentance and reconciliation. Beloved, I pity the church that doesn't have such men and women. The church of Philippi had at least one. Paul called him my true companion. It's interesting, in, in the literature on this text, uh, there's debate as to what he means by this. Because uh, it looks like this may actually be the name of a person. His name is Sizicus. Sizicus means my yoke fellow, my true companion. But it may very well be the name of the person. Like when, when, I, say, uh, when I say son of encouragement, you think, Paul's companion, Barnabas, right? Why? Because Barnabas means Son of encouragement. It may be some scholars um, infer or they uh, assume, perhaps, that, that since Paul is saying, you, singular, my true yoke fellow, and the word is Sisychus, 
he may actually be speaking to a man in the body whose name is Sizzicus. It doesn't matter in the long run because we know he's talking to someone. You, brother, to whom I entrust these women, help them, help them, get involved with them. So often, the friction continues, the disunity continues between whoever the people are because no one is willing to help. And or the people who are involved in uh, the friction are, are too embarrassed to ask for it. Don't be, don't be too proud. There are people in this church who can help you reconcile. We see it every day of the week at Calvary Bible Church. Oh, my friend, in your heart of hearts, would you have to confess today that there is division between you and others or someone in the church or maybe just in your home? Consider the importance of unity in that relationship, a union that stems from your union with Christ a union that is saturated, whether you feel like it or not, whether you're cooperating with it or not, with your union with Christ. There is responsibility here. The reality is, if you are a Christian, you are united with Christ. But with that reality comes responsibility. You must employ the resources of that union. It's like plugging the power tool into the electricity. It's like recognizing that this is a hopeless situation unless I am, here's the word of Jesus, abiding in Christ. What's that a reference to? Union. Practical union with Christ. So ask for help if you need that and we as a church will be found by the Lord standing firm as a church which will be marked by our fellowship whose chief characteristic is unity. Let's pray. Lord, we are reminded once again of our own inability And so we praise you for your superiority, your sovereignty. We praise you for your immutability that you never change. Praise you for your power. Praise you for your wisdom. Praise you that you bring all of that into your relationship with us. Therefore, why do we fail to pray? Why do we fail to read your word? Why do we fail to pursue reconciliation and humble ourselves before one another? And if need be, for the glory of Christ and the good of his church, ask for help. Father, may it not be said of any one of us here today. May Christ be glorified. May he be preeminent in this church. 
as will be evidenced by our unity. We know that's your will for us, and so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.